Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 35, The First Romanovs. Thanks for listening in. So, at the end of the last episode, we reached the year 1613. And in the February of that year, the Grand Land Assembly, or Zemsky Sabor, chose stroke elected a new Tsar, an event which, unbeknownst to them, officially ended the calamitous 15-year period known as the Smuta, or the Time of Troubles, although bear in mind that after this point in time, Russia didn't suddenly become the land of milk and honey. This week, we'll look at who that lucky man was, and why he, in particular, had been chosen. Then we're going to tie up some Time of Troubles-related loose ends, look at who came out of it well and who didn't, and I'll give you my overall two-penneth worth. Okay, and then for the rest of the episode, we'll get stuck into the early part of the new Tsar's reign, which also marks the beginning of a new dynasty that will go on to rule Russia for just over 300 years, 304 to be exact, and represents what many historians and scholars see as being the start of Russia's modern age. Hang on a minute, though. This episode is called The First Romanovs, i.e. plural, more than one. So why will we only be covering the early reign of the new Tsar, i.e. singular, only one? Well, that's because there was only one Tsar, but there was another Romanov who would be the power behind the throne. A bit like the situation in Russia between 2008 and 2012, when Dmitry Medvedev was the president and Vladimir Putin was pulling the strings. But anyway, you'll see when we get there. Before I start, though, there's just an update on the state of the podcast. Uh, Come on now, no groaning. I haven't done this for a while, for at least three weeks. And the really exciting news is that the podcast has a new website, which you can find at www.historyofrussia.net. 
Now the new website is fully operational, but there are certain pages that will need a degree of fine tuning. So you'll need to bear with me while I futz around in the semi-darkness for a while. But what I would say is that the new website is already much more user-friendly than the original. And it also contains a specific page called Maps and Timelines, which, guess what, contains or will contain all of the maps and timelines that I've mentioned in some of the earlier episodes, but that have been almost impossible to find on the original website. Leanne and Richard, it's early days and there's more to come, but let me know what you think so far. There are also contact and comment sections on the new website, but again, I need to specifically tailor these. So for the time being, if you want to get in touch with a question or comment, then it's probably best to do that via Twitter, where I'm at HistoryRussia1, and then there's email NordicWorld at Outlook.com. And then finally, if you want to leave me a rating or review, then please feel free to do that on either the website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Or you can always follow or subscribe to the podcast on whichever channel or platform you listen in on. So remember, the new webpage is at www.historyofrussia.net. The old Podbean one will still be around for a while, but I won't be doing anything to it. And so that site will eventually become moribund. And the only downside to that is that new listeners to the early shows will have to put up with a degree of confusion as I droned on and on about the old website ad nauseum. But they can't be helped. And as I always say, worse things have happened at sea. One thing before I start. I've had a couple of comments from listeners about the historical situation and the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. And also the term Ruthenian. Uh, the latter being something that I've studiously avoided up to now to avoid confusion. So I've decided that the episode after next will be a state of the nation type episode which will hopefully explain in simple terms how and why we got to where we are today vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine. Right, that's all done. Let's crack on now with our story and do some history of Russia. Okay, so the Zemsky Zabor, or Assembly of the Land, that met only occasionally, and which was made up of four key groupings, the nobility, the clergy, the merchants, and the townspeople, had elected that their new Tsar. And that person was the 17-year-old Mikhail Romanov. Now that probably comes as a shock to you listening in, because prior to this, he hasn't been mentioned at all. And it probably came as a bit of a shock to most of the Assembly, I mean, just who the hell was this guy? Well, the surname is a big clue. Mikhail was the son of Fyodor Romanov and his wife Xenia. No, not that Xenia, but more of her later. Mikhail was born in July 1596, but when he was four years old, his father Fyodor was found guilty of plotting to kill Tsar Boris and as a punishment was exiled to a monastery, forced to become a monk, and became known as Philaret. At the same time, Mikhail's mother, Xenia, was forced to take the veil and assume the name Martha. That's right, it's Martha with an F, and not Martha, as pronounced by a Cockney Baraboy. Martha! Eventually, Martha and Mikhail ended up at the Apatiev Monastery, in a town called Kostroma, 
about 200 miles northeast of Moscow, and they were still residing there when a delegation arrived from the capital in late March 1613 to tell them the good news, and apparently it had taken the envoys over a month and a half to track Mikhail down because no one in Moscow had been entirely sure of where he actually was. Anyway, we'll leave them there for a few minutes whilst they let the enormity of the message sink in, whilst we take a quick look at the reasons as to why Mikhail was chosen in the first place. And the first thing we should note is that there wasn't exactly a plethora of contenders for the Russian throne. You had some obvious candidates, the Polish king Sigismund III and his son Vladislav. But, and to state the obvious, they were both foreign and more worryingly Catholic, whereas Mikhail was the exact opposite, Russian and Orthodox. Mikhail also fit the bill in terms of his family's noble standing and its links with the Rurikid line, and a big plus point was that he had no involvement either with the Gudenov Tsars or the Polish-backed regimes, or in the Machiavellian backstabbing that was prevalent prevalent during both periods. And then finally, there really wasn't anyone else. Plus he was young and inexperienced, and therefore unlikely to be in a position to throw his weight around, unlike perhaps his father, Philaret. A mention of Philaret reminds me that we have a few loose ends to tie up from the last couple of episodes. So we'll start with Romanov Sr., who if you remember, had been slung in a Polish prison by Sigismund back in 1610, allegedly because he'd refused to support Sigismund's ambition to become the Tsar of Russia. Well, in 1613, he was still in prison, out of sight and out of mind, certainly from the Zemsky Sabor's perspective, which is partly why he wasn't chosen as a new Tsar, and his son was. And I say partly because... The other reason why Philaret probably wasn't chosen to be Russia's new leader was simply down to the feeling amongst the boyars that he never quite knew where you stood with him or what he was going to do, and therefore you couldn't really trust him. Now to be fair, perhaps some of that wasn't Philaret's fault. Remember he had been arrested and exiled by Boris, which had no doubt left him with a chip on his shoulder regarding Gudunov and Vasily Shusky. On the flip side, he always appeared to be a bit too eager to join up with whoever at the time was pretending to be Dmitri, and his perceived close ties with Sigismund and the Poles were also a source of disquiet. Anyway, it's too soon to tell if Philaret was a Time of Troubles winner or loser, because at some point in the not-too-distant future, he'll be back in Moscow in a position of influence and power. So, let's reserve judgment until then. Someone who's not going to be back, and who we can definitely count as a loser, is ex-Tsar Vasily IV. Since he'd been deposed back in 1610, and forced to become a monk and enter a monastery, life had become harder for the former Tsar, who along with his brothers had then been transferred at some point in 1611 to a castle just outside of Warsaw, where he died a year later. And one other person who also died in prison but comes out of the time of troubles with his reputation intact or enhanced was Hermogen. The patriarch who'd done so much to resist the Poles and had been instrumental in getting the first and second national armies off the ground was beaten and starved to death 
by his Polish captors in 1612. And another loser, and this time, well, on a pretty tragic scale, actually, was Boris Godunov's daughter, Zenia, who, remember, had been disposed of by the first false Dmitri just before his marriage to Marina. Zenia, who was pregnant, had ended up in a monastery where she was given the name Olga. And subsequently, she was transferred to another monastery just prior to giving birth to false Dmitri number one's son. Well, in 1610, this monastery was attacked by a group of Cossack soldiers. And what happened next? Well, if you try to picture one of the worst scenes imaginable, you'll be on the right track. Xenia survived, but would die in 1622, aged just 40. And there is no mention of what happened to her son. We'll come on to Marina and her son by false Dimitri II, Ivan the baby brigand, later in the episode. And as for the false Dimitris themselves, well, you could probably argue with some justification that they were just the full guys of the whole piece and that the real villain of the show was Sigismund. But then again, the Polish king never seemed personally interested enough in the schemes that he either hatched or were hatched in his name that sought to disrupt Russia when it was already on its knees due to the famine of the early 1600s. Anyway, Sigismund is still on the scene, so again, we perhaps need to reserve judgment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Just as an aside here, and yes, I do realise at some point soon I need to get back to Martha and young Mikhail, who are still trying to get their heads around everything. If I was ever to run a good old British pub, then the name I would choose would be the False Dimitri. And equally, I think that the False Dimitris would make a superb name for a post-punk stroke indie band. Anyway, enough of my frivolous musings. The real losers from the Time of Troubles were, of course, the Russian people, just as in the current Russo-Ukrainian war, sorry, military operation, the real losers will be the Ukrainian and probably the Russian people. In a 15-year period that witnessed a volcanic winter, famine, almost continual warfare and six changes of regime, it's estimated that the total deaths caused by the conflict range from 1 to 1.2 million and some areas of Russia experienced population declines of over 50%. And for what? Okay, the Russian state, the system of governance, the church, the boyars and the institution of Tsardom 
all remained in place, more or less intact, and the external powers, Sweden and the Commonwealth, have only made modest territorial gains. And whilst during the aftermath of the war, peasants' wages improved, and the process of insurfment which had intensified in the late 1500s was rolled back to a degree, these benefits would be lost and then reversed in the centuries that immediately followed. And so it was the poor who were most impacted by the disastrous events that occurred between 1598 and 1613. And for them, it didn't really matter that latter-day historians had decided that the official end of the Time of Troubles was February 1613. Polish and Swedish armies are, and would continue to be on the rampage, and a 16-year-old non-entity has just been chosen as the Commander-in-Chief. And just a final word on the Time of Troubles. A special day called Unity Day was held each year on the 4th of November to commemorate the 1612 capitulation of the Polish garrison in the Kremlin. Until the time of the Soviet Union, when it was replaced by celebrations related to the October Revolution. However, it was reinstated by the notable historian and esteemed leader, President Vladimir Putin, in 2005. Okay, Let's get back to the Apatiev Monastery and young Mikhail Romanov, who together with his mother Marfa, who would later be called the Great Nun Marfa, is trying to figure out if he wants the role of Tsar of Russia. And things aren't helped by the fact that, well, as I've just said, Mikhail is only 16. He's really got no idea what is involved in being Tsar. He has a pious, gentle nature, He's also of a nervous disposition and is afflicted by a tick in his left eye. And finally, due to an accident with a horse when he was younger, he has a lot of trouble walking. So Martha, concerned that her son would just not be up to the job and no doubt aware of what a mess Russia was really in and what had happened to the last three czars, initially protested. But her reasoning fell on deaf ears and eventually it was agreed that Mikhail would sign on the dotted line. Marfa had been right on one score. Moscow was in such a dilapidated state that there was no accommodation decent enough to house the new Tsar and his entourage, and they had to wait for several weeks at a monastery 75 miles away from Moscow before anything suitable could be found and made ready. Eventually, Mikhail was crowned on the 22nd of July 1613, some five and a bit months after his formal election. And with all of the religious and state ceremonies to get through, it was only at the beginning of August that he could finally get down to even thinking about carrying out any meaningful work. And realising that he was limited in the sense that he was vastly inexperienced and not of the most robust health, either physically or mentally, the new Tsar decided, or someone strongly advised the Tsar to decide, that he would rule with the assistance of Boyar Duma and the Zemsky Sabor. Now, if you're a pessimistic cynic like me, you might be thinking that Mikhail was simply a figurehead or a rubber stamp, and that it was the Boyars who were in control, just as they'd planned all along. And for the first few years, you might have had a point. But, 
The events and actions during this initial period of the new Tsar's reign suggest that this arrangement was both, well, sort of sensible and practical, and most importantly, it kept the boyars happy. And even if they weren't happy, kept them with the programme. Plus, Martha the Great Nun was around to offer emotional and spiritual support to her son and help keep everybody on the straight and narrow, or try to. So the first job for the new Tsar and his boyars was to deal with the military threat posed by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which held chunks of Russian territory in the west, and the Swedes who were lodged to the north around Novgorod. Plus there was the small matter of a rebellion in the southeast, led by a Cossack hetman, Ivan Zarutsky, who was in league with none other than Marina of false Dmitri fame and her son Ivan the baby brigand. So in time-honoured fashion, let's take the last of those first. After the death of false Dmitri II, who, if you remember, was shot by one of his own men, Zarutsky married Marina and then in 1611 became involved with the first national army where his agenda seems to have been to get Marina's son Ivan on the throne as Tsar. As we know, and due to internal differences, the first national army broke up, and then when the second national army was formed, it was done so, minus Zarutsky and his Cossacks. So, realising that his planet was now in peril, Zarutsky attempted to assassinate one of the leaders of the Second National Army, Dmitry Pozharsky, but this was botched, and Zarutsky, along with Marina and Ivan, fled southwards to the Cossack heartlands, where for the next few years they managed to survive as outlaws, with an ever-dwindling bunch of supporters. But eventually their luck ran out, and in 1614 near Astrakhan, they were captured by a pro-Romanov band of Cossacks and handed over to the government forces. On the 16th of July, two public executions were held. First, Zarutsky was impaled, followed then by the hanging of poor three-year-old Ivan, who, because the drop was too short to break his neck, died slowly of strangulation. Five months later, on Christmas Eve 1614, Marina, who had been imprisoned, was found dead in her cell, most probably from strangulation. There is a legend that before she died, and due to her son's barbaric death, Marina, or Marinka the Witch, as she went on to be known in Russia, put a curse on the Romanov dynasty, something along the lines of, you started in the Apatiev Monastery, and you will end in the Apatiev house, referring, of course, to the last place that Tsar Nicholas II and his family were held prior to their deaths in 1918. Well, I don't know about you, but that all sounds a bit too tidy and fanciful to me. But you never know. Meanwhile, back on the Swedish and Polish fronts, Tsar Mikhail's armies had managed to stop any further advances into Russian territory, but couldn't quite get on the front foot and force either invader back, resulting in a messy stalemate that suited no one. And so eventually, all parties agreed to come to the negotiating table, starting with the Swedes and their new king, Gustavus Adolphus, who agreed to the Peace of Stoltovo on the 17th of February 1617. Now under the terms of this treaty, the Swedes gave back Novgorod to Russia, 
but on the flip side gained the small but strategically placed province of Ingria, an area near modern-day St. Petersburg, which went on to lend its name to the whole Russo-Swedish conflict. So on the plus side, the Ingrian War was over. Conversely, however, the conflict with the Commonwealth rumbled on inconclusively for another year, until either in late 1618 or early 1619, the Treaty of Delino was agreed with the Russians giving up large swathes of their western territory, including Smolensk, and the Commonwealth giving away, well, nothing really, except for a guarantee of 14 years' peace. Oh, and there was an exchange of prisoners, which meant that one fairly important person, the other Romanov, was back in Moscow. Yes, that ultimate survivor, Filaret, had returned. He'd been a prisoner in Poland for eight years, and he must have thought that, like Vasily Shusky, he would die there. But here he was, back in Russia, needing a job, looking to be useful, and with his son sitting on the throne as Tsar. And so on the 24th of June, 1619, Filaret was enthroned as the Patriarch of Moscow and of all Russia. And from then, until his death in 1633, father and son, and mostly father, ruled the country together. And as for the Tsar's mother, Marfa, the great nun, her days in the limelight were over, and she retreated, i.e. she was forced back to her secluded monastic life. Okay, the old voice is going. We're going to have to leave it there for this week. Next time we'll see how Mikhail and Filaret got on running a country that was finally free of war and the time of troubles. Plus, we're going to take a closer look at what was going on in Sweden and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So, until then, and as I always say, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.